0: The crucifixion is recorded in John chapter 18, and in John chapter 17, Jesus he, he prays prayers in all of Scripture. It's his high priestly prayer that is that is an intercession on behalf of his disciples and those who will believe on him throughout the course of history. And in verse one, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour in which he's going to be crucified, and he's gonna offer himself as a ransom for the fallen race. He says, Father, the hour has come. And then he says, glorify the Son as the Son has glorified you, or glorify me the way I have glorified you. Follow this. It's not too hard to follow. You're pretty smart people. Jesus is communicating by inference that what's gonna happen on the cross is glorious. It's going to demonstrate that the claims of Satan are false he's actually really, 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 really unselfish. Jesus is the express image of God, according to 2 Corinthians 4. Um, According to Jesus himself in John 10 and verse 30, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So here's Jesus on the precipice of being crucified. He's saying to the Father, glorify me as I've glorified you. And then in verse five, it says, Father, glorify me with the glory that we used to share before the world came into existence. Or in other words, show the universe who we always were. They couldn't really understand. They couldn't really know. They couldn't conceive of this fully in the context of the great controversy, but show them through my crucifixion, my glory and who I really am. So Jesus demonstrates that God is unselfish. He is benevolent. He is good. He is loving. He's kind. He's just. He's holy, and he's worthy to be worshipped, and he's worthy to rule the universe. He is the sovereign, and he deserves to be, because he's good. Did you know the great controversy is not about whether God is powerful? That's not in doubt. The great controversy is about whether or not God is good. So angels rebel, angels revolt, because they're convinced on some level that God is unselfish, and therefore he's not fit to rule them. They have the right to rule themselves. There's an old lady named Ellen White and she wrote a a statement where she says, unselfishness, the principle of God's government is the principle that Satan hates. It's very existence he denies. He denies that unselfishness even exists. But why would he deny that? Because he's justifying himself because he's chosen to be selfish. And then she says, it was the work of Jesus to disprove his claim. And it's the work of all who follow Jesus as well. And then she goes on to give examples of people, followers of God, who demonstrated unselfishness, unselfish commitment to God, and unselfish commitment to those around them. And guess uh, who some of those examples would be? Job was one of them. He loved God irrespective of whatever circumstances came upon him. He demonstrated the unselfish love of God and served as a type of Jesus, in the sense that he reflected Jesus in his own life. She talks about the unselfish commitment of Jonathan, the son of Saul, how he was unselfishly committed to to his friend David. And in being committed to David, those of you guys who know the story, who was God's anointed, it meant that he himself was gonna lose access to the throne. So he was so unselfishly committed to God that even if being committed to God meant that he couldn't be the next king of Israel, he was still gonna be committed to God. And God could look down at this planet and he could point down at, Joseph, at Jonathan and say, see, unselfishness exists. Look at Jonathan. Unselfishness exists. Look at Job. And then the ultimate example is unselfishness exists. Look at Jesus. He, he is the express image of the Godhead. He is the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. He's God in human flesh. That's God in human flesh. Now, that's not the power of God in the sense like the glory of his mighty, eternal, infinite power, but it's definitely the glory of God, i.e. that's his person, that's who he is. That's the kind of person he is, and he's unselfish. You follow the logic there. Now, this is very important uh, as we get into what we want to talk about specifically here. So, three angels' messages, okay? Um, so it's just Are we all convinced uh, from this short amount of time and with all that we know about the scriptures, god is unselfish (laughs) and he's unselfishly committed to the good of others even to the point that he would give up his own soul for the sake of those who are spitting on him anybody ever spit on you i've been spat upon before how does that make you feel anybody ever like stay up all night because of the pain of the guilt that they feel because of something they've done Mm -hmm. but i've done that before that doesn't feel very good there are things that i've done in my life that i feel so terribly guilty for i feel so terribly guilty for that when I think about them, I can't sleep. this is just like one sin I've committed, like one thing I've done wrong. Now, just just think about it. Let's just imagine that God placed upon me at one moment, at one moment in time, he placed upon me the full realization of all the bad things I've ever done, all the guilt, all the shame that's accumulated over my entire life, the entire span of my life. He dropped that on me in one second. How would that feel? Well, if just like a couple of the things I've done in life have hurt me so powerfully and so profoundly that I can't even sleep for like two or three days. What in the world would happen to me if all the guilt and shame of everything I've ever done was placed on me at once? It'd be horrific, it'd be unbelievably terrible. Now, according to scripture, God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. This is to say the combined guilt and shame and sin of all of humanity throughout all of time. is placed on him. And it took supernatural forces from heaven to keep him alive. Angels had to come down from heaven to supernaturally sustain him because it wasn't physically possible for him to stay alive as he was bearing the guilt and the shame and the sin of the world. And on top of that, he's now facing the wrath of an almighty God against evil and sin and Satan. So think about this, he's being spat upon. He's being punched in the face. He's being, he's being abused like with whips and they're ripping his flesh apart. Simultaneously, he's bearing all the guilt of all the sin throughout the whole course of the history of the world, and the Father God, the infinitely righteous judge of the universe, is looking down upon him with wrath, because he has now become not an embodiment of the kingdom of heaven, but an embodiment of the kingdom of Satan. And he's treading the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God all at once. And he's sitting there, and he's bearing it, and he's bearing it, and he's bearing it, and he's he's suffering it. And he's saying, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. They just don't know what they're doing. So forgive them. Guys, if this doesn't prove that God is unselfish, nothing can prove that God is unselfish. What else could he do? There's nothing else that he could do besides what he has done to to, to show the universe and to prove to humanity that God is love and that God is unselfish. Amen? Amen? Totally. I had a vision once when I was a druggie, the vision of the throne of God. I was in my friend's. Um, apartment in this bedroom and my 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 head was on that side of the room my legs were on that side of the room my chest was on that side of the room and my mind I don't know where it was and I was I was really sick I was really sick and I remember I just was sitting there and I saw myself and I was an old man I was really old and decrepit and I watched myself live life in reverse And then I was just a little kid, I was just a little boy, and I was sitting before a great throne. It was great and white and shining. And there was like a shining man of light sitting on the throne. And he was just sitting there, and I was just looking. at him. And I said to him, is this it? Is this everything? I've traveled everywhere a person could travel, at least in my mind at the time. Traveled the world. I've enjoyed all the pleasures a person can enjoy, right? I've done everything that I could do to find satisfaction. Is this it? Is this it? Like, that's, I think, why I was a druggie. Is this it? <laughs> this is it? Or this is it? You're born, and you contemplate getting old and dying, and that's it? <laughs> that's it? Is this it? I got this overwhelming sense at that moment. I get this overwhelming sense. No, this isn't it. And this thought came to my mind. God is good, and nothing else matters. Hmm. Like, that thought came to my mind. I started jumping up and down and screaming like at that moment. God is good and nothing else matters. God is good and nothing else matters. And there's like people there that are just like, okay. We're like on a three-day drug binge. You know, it's like, God is good nothing else matters. Yay! I can trace the beginning of my conversion to that moment. God is good. God is unselfish. Yes, there is something more. Hallelujah, amen. And if God isn't unselfish, what in the world do we have to live for? The first angel's message. We have the everlasting gospel. We have a knowledge of the fact that God is good and unselfish. And then it says, fear God and give glory to him. Don't fear the beast. Don't fear anything that can come upon you from an apostate world that's filled with all kinds of warped and bizarre ideas. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment Has come. Okay, now think about this. This is verse seven. The hour of his judgment has come. This is being communicated to the world through the people of God, right? Through the messengers of God at the end of time before Jesus comes back, which indicates that God's last day warning to the world, the warning of love, the warning of care and concern, the last day warning from God includes the message that the hour of God's judgment, it's not coming in the future. It's actually come. It's begun. God has begun prior to the second coming a work of judgment. Now, this may seem foreign to one or two people in this room, or maybe 20 or 30 people, but it's actually not foreign to Scripture. We oftentimes see in Scripture before God executes a judgment or pronounces a final judgment, he goes into a process of investigation or a process of discovery. And why does he do this? You're going to find out, but you've already uh, heard why. It's because he's unselfish. Now think with me just real quickly. We're going to cover a few stories that most of you are familiar with. You're not all familiar with, but we're going to just cover them in brief. In Genesis chapter 3, you see the fall of mankind. After the fall of mankind, you see God interacting with, with, with Adam and with Eve and with the serpent. And after that interaction, God pronounces a judgment. Okay, upon man, and upon woman, and upon the serpent. And God says to uh, the serpent, you're gonna crawl around in your belly, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says to the man, for the rest of your life, it's gonna be painful for you to produce food from the earth. There's gonna be thorns, there's gonna be thistles, and you're gonna have to sweat, and you're gonna to have to agonize in order to survive. It's a curse that I'm pronouncing upon the world, but it's for your sakes. Okay, so God pronounces a judgment upon men he pronounces a judgment upon woman. He says, woman, from this point forward, your desire is going to be for your husband. And when you bring forth kids, it's going to hurt really, really bad. And trust me, I've seen it. It hurts real bad. I haven't felt it, but I've seen it. And I can imagine. It hurts really bad. <laughs> I've delivered two of my three kids like I've delivered them in my hands in the bathroom. And it looked pretty painful (laughs) thank you Jesus I'm a man give me thorns give me thorns 100% I think
1: we got off late guys
0: no we didn't Uh, because yeah anyways I could say some things but then you'll tell my wife and I'll be in trouble (laughs) okay before God pronounces those judgments guess what he does Okay, they sinned they realized they were naked they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves and then the bible says god came to them in the cool of the day okay and god said oh uh, where are you adam adam where are you does he not know where where adam is well of course he knows where adam is adam where are you adam says i hid myself because I was naked and i became ashamed who, who told you you were naked have you eaten of the fruit of the tree okay no Think about this, God's asking questions. Does he need to ask these questions? Does he need enlightenment? Is he not aware of what's happened? Of course he's aware of what's happened. He's God, he knows the end from the beginning. He understood exactly what happened. Okay, so then why is he asking questions? Why is he investigating the circumstance? Why is he bringing his people, Adam and Eve, through this process of discovery and investigation? Why? Because they don't operate on his level. God is unselfish. And as he enters into a work of judgment, he brings those that the judgment involves through a process of judgment, not for his sake, but for their sake. Does this make sense? Yeah. And the same thing happens in Genesis chapter 4. Check it out. It's real simple. Uh, Cain is jealous of his brother Abel because his brother Abel's worship was accepted. But his worship was not accepted because he didn't bring God what God had asked to be brought. And so he's angry with his brother. He rises up in the field. He kills his brother. His brother's dead. God comes to him and says, hey, Cain, where's your brother? And then Cain says, I don't know. I'm my brother's keeper. Uh, and then he says, what have you done? He's asking questions. He's investigating, right? He's bringing came through a process of discovery and investigation. Well, why is he doing it? Well, because he's dealing with creatures who are not on his level. He condescends, he's unselfish. Does this make sense? He is the infinite eternal God of the universe, but his creatures are not. They're limited in their capacity and understanding. And so since he's unselfish and he's loving and he's benevolent, he brings them through a process so that before he pronounces judgment, they can understand why it makes sense. Does this make sense? If God is a God of love, he's a God of relationship. And and how in the world does it work in relationships when you have one party going, this is my judgment, I know everything, and that's how it works, you should be happy. How How does that figure into love and relationships and understanding? And, you know, how does that, it doesn't fit. Do you follow what I'm saying? If God showed up on planet Earth and just said, okay, I've made a bunch of decisions, this is how it's going, and the universe wasn't informed. There wasn't any process of discovery before he made his final judgments about stuff, dude. That's crazy. That's not God. That's not unselfish. Do you follow what I'm saying? One more time. One more example here, real quickly. So God's going to pronounce judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, according to the Bible. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah fall into gross and terrible uh, sin and practice, and so. Um, abraham is living outside of sodom his nephew lot is living inside of sodom and abraham is god's friend and god comes down to abraham in the person of three men it's two angels and it's jesus and they interact with abraham they have conversations and he talks with abraham about what he's going to do to sodom and he says listen <laughs> the evil of sodom has come up to me into heaven and i've heard of it it's been announced to me My angels who minister on human beings' behalf have alerted me to the condition of Sodom. And so now I've come down for myself personally to see if the things that I've heard are actually coming true. Okay, now wait a second. Does God need to come down to earth to discover whether or not what he's hearing from heaven is true? No! In him we live and move and have our being. The Bible says, where can we go to hide from God? You can't go anywhere. This is just communicating to human beings, listen, before God pronounces judgment, final judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, he's going to go through an investigative process because he's not dealing with beings on his level. So he's unselfishly condescending to judge in such a way that makes sense to creatures. Do you follow what I'm saying? Imagine that you're an angel. Now, now just, 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 just so that no one's lost behind the last message from God to a fallen world includes a message that says, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. It's come. It's not coming. It's come. And uh, if you're an angel, now think about this. If you're an angel, uh, it would behoove you to want to know, okay, why in the world some people are going to get in and some people aren't going to get in to, to the heaven, to the kingdom of God. Now think about this. Uh, I have two little boys Wait, I have three? I yeah. <laughs> uh, two little boys, I was going to say, and one baby. Um, so I have three little boys, and the greatest fear of a parent who loves their children is that their child, one of the greatest fears of a parent who loves their kids is that their child will be sexually abused, okay? It's, it's, a, it's something I think about all the time, I watch my kids all the time, and if somebody's showing them an inordinate amount, amount of affection, I'm watching, now please, you can hug my kids, you can kiss my kids, and I'm not going to judge you, I'm not going to judge you, but if I see the same person like in a private setting trying to pull my kid aside, and I get, I'm, pretty, I I'm pretty suspicious. That's my right. That's my right. That's my responsibility. Now imagine if there happened to be a man who moved into my neighborhood and he was a pedophile. Like if you look online, he was a sex offender, he was a pedophile, right? How in the world am I gonna feel about the fact that a pedophile moved six doors down from me? I'm not gonna feel really good about it, why? Because I don't want my children raped, that's why. Is that fair? Mm. I think that's fair. Now there are angels in heaven, cherubim and seraphim. There are other worlds according to scripture. The Bible says in Hebrews 1 that God has made other worlds. It says in Hebrews 1 that angels are ministering spirits. Jesus says that angels are involved in the great controversy between good and evil. We've already seen that in Revelation chapter 12. Peter says in 1 Peter that the angels are intensely interested in our salvation. Well, why do you think they're so interested in our salvation? Well, because before we go to heaven, they want to know if we've been saved. Right? So in the final judgment... That happens before the second coming. Uh, angels are involved in it, and God is going to open up a process of disclosure so that angels can be comfortable with the fact that you're going to move next door. You may think pedophiles are disgusting. You should see what angels think of you. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that they think negatively of you. You know what I'm saying. I'm talking about your condition, right? Like somebody can be lathered with, like, like dead animal uh, like flesh. Like, you could just put dead animal flesh all over somebody, and I can love that person, but at the same time think, boy, they're disgusting. That's what I mean when you should see how the angels think of you, right? Um, they're they're immersed in this great controversy thing and they're intensely concerned and the Bible communicates this on so many levels that they are very, very interested in the salvation of mankind and they're gonna participate in the judgment that begins before the second coming. I want to just give you a little bit more biblical evidence so that you're comfortable with this idea that that the judgment of God, the final judgment of God actually begins before the second coming or an investigatory process. A process of discovery begins before the second coming. Okay, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, uh, in the midst of a sermon that the Apostle Paul is preaching to some Greek philosophers, he says, in the times of this ignorance, God, he winks. Okay, he winks. But now he commands everybody, everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day in which he will judge the world. So he's preaching a sermon, it's in the first century BC, he's talking to Greek philosophers, and he says, God is so generous and gracious, he's just winking at people's ignorance. But as he reveals light to them, he commands everybody to repent as you see the light, as you see the truth, you repent. He commands it because he has set, what did it say, a day in which he will judge the world. So from Paul's time, he's looking forward and he sees God has set a day at which he will judge. A few chapters later, in chapter 24, Paul is before a guy named Felix and his wife. And the Bible says he's talking to them about the way that's in Jesus. Am I losing you guys? Am I going too fast? I think I'm speaking relatively clearly, yeah? He's, Paul's speaking uh, b- before this guy, Felix, and, and he's talking about the way of Jesus. And it says he reasons with him about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. So he's talking about Jesus, and in talking about Jesus with this guy, Felix, he begins to discuss righteousness, self-control, and judgment, and the text says that's to come, which indicates the judgment of God had not yet come in the (laughs) days of the apostles. It was still yet future. You with me? In Revelation chapter 14, the hour of his judgment has come, and this message is coming to the world right before the second coming. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, the Bible says, behold, this is Jesus speaking, behold, I come quickly. And guess what he says? My reward is with me. Now he has his reward with him to give to people when he returns the second time because a process has finished. A process of deciding who gets what reward. Does this make sense? But the angels are involved in it. In Daniel chapter 7, when the judgment scene, the final judgment scene is shown, guess who's there? Thousands and thousands of angels. Why? Because they're interested. They're interested about whether or not you really, truly are a follower of Jesus. You say you're a follower of Jesus, but are you? Are you? Well, they don't have the capacity that God has to really know the heart, to understand the mind. You know what I'm saying? They're brilliant and magnificent but they're not God. And so God's going to bring them into his understanding through a judgment that's begun. Does this make sense? This message needs to go to the world because they need to understand God has a right to judge and he's about to judge. The end of all things is at hand. The judgment of God has begun. Take stock of yourself. All the things around you, they're going to pass away soon. The judgment of God has come. Now, according to scripture, just a few more things. Now I'm telling the truth. According to scripture... The, the, the final judgment of God is according to works. Now, this is interesting, okay? We're going to get into some sticky stuff here, but God will help me, and I'll explain some things to you that are going to make you go, I get it. That's radical, by the grace of God, okay? Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 17, says the judgment is according to works. That is to say, we're judged according to what we have done. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 says the same thing. Romans chapter 2 says the same thing. The universal teaching of the New Testament authors is, in the final judgment, you are judged according to your works. Now, some people, when they hear that, they get kind of confused. They get kind of disoriented because they think to themselves, wait a second, I thought we were saved by grace through faith. I thought that a person was justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Well, you thought right, amen? You thought right. There's nothing wrong with your thinking. You thought right, but you get a little bit confused because when you read in the Bible that it says we're judged according to our works, the picture that comes to your mind is is that 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 you're gonna learn to do enough good. You're gonna do. You're gonna get. you're gonna, you're gonna get so good that in the final judgment, God will go, man you're so good you get to come in but you're so bad you don't get to come in so like you did 500 good things and 780 bad things and since 780 bad things outweighs 500 good things you're out you're judged according to your works that's the the concept that's the idea that comes to our minds but i want to challenge that concept i want to challenge that thinking and help you to see how judgment according to works is in no way at odds with the idea that you're saved by grace I'll explain it as best as I can, God help me. The Bible does not say you are judged, okay, on the basis of your works. It says that you're judged according to your works, and there's a huge difference. Judged on the basis of your works would mean that the the basis upon which God judges is your behavior. That's That's not what the text is saying. It's saying you're judged according to your works. Now how can you be, what does that mean, being judged according to your works? Well, your works, the works of your life, they combine together to communicate what you believe and what you've chosen. God honors free will, yes or no. He honors free will and he imposes nothing upon anyone. He gives heaven to those who choose heaven. He doesn't give heaven to those who don't choose heaven. In the final analysis, in the final judgment, God judges according to works because your works communicate what you've chosen and God gives you what you've chosen. If the judgment is scary, you know what's scary about it is that God gives you what you've chosen. God honors your choice. And this is what it means to be judged according to your works. Your works combine, the works of your life combined to communicate what you want what you believe, are you repentant or are you not? It's not an issue of becoming perfect so that God accepts you, it's an issue of are you following Jesus, are you repentant and can that be demonstrated through the works of your life and if it can, you're in because that's what you want and that's what you've chosen. If it can't be demonstrated, then you're not in and it's not because God doesn't want you in, it's not because you're you're, you're not good enough, Nobody's good enough, by the way. Nobody's good enough. It's because you didn't choose to go in. And what proved that you didn't choose to go in is that the combined works of your life and and your thoughts and your feelings and all that God knows about you show that you really just don't want to go in. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Some people say, how can you be judged according to your works? If I'm driving... If I'm driving to work, and somebody cuts me off, and then I get mad, and I shoot in the bird, am I going to hell? Is that what you're saying? Where's the assurance of salvation in that? think that's a good argument, but it's actually quite a stupid argument. Not that those people are stupid, it's just a really bad argument. The Bible doesn't say you're judged according to a work. It says you're judged according to your works. The works of your life are taken into consideration as God makes judgment to decide, do you believe or don't you believe? Mm -hmm. You're saved if you believe, you're lost if you don't believe, and your works communicate whether you believe or whether you don't, Mm -hmm. right? It's not a works issue, like I've got to work my way into a state of perfection and then God will accept me. That's not the point. The point is your works just communicate what you believe and what you want. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the final judgment who's judged, whoa, their works show the fruit of the spirit, the work of repentance. These people are not perfect. Did they get the perfectly righteous robe of Jesus accredited to their account? Does this make sense? You're judged according to your works. When Adam says, God doesn't come to him and says, Hey, Adam, and say, Did, did you believe? He says, did you believe? He says, No, did you eat? What did he say, Did you eat? Because he doesn't need to ask whether you believe. He could say, Yeah, I believe, but you know, And it can get abstract and vague and confusing. You need an objective basis upon which to determine facts. Mm-hmm. Did you believe? Oh no, 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 no. Did you eat? There's one answer. Yeah? You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Another thing real quickly is God is no respecter of persons. He's not partial. You know what I'm saying? His feelings don't come into how he judges. He's not biased. And he needs an objective basis upon which to judge. And the objective basis upon which he can judge is your works. Does this make sense? How does the universe know that he's really being fair? He shows it. He shows them all the facts. You can say that According to your works means according to all the facts. That's, that's what that could, that could be translated in. Does this all make sense? Yes. It's not legalism. You're saved by grace because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He recreated the human race in himself. And he offers you the spirit so, that can be, uh, so you can choose. And if you choose and you're repentant, you're in. You're in. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, I've said a lot of stuff. I know it's not been perfectly on point. But I hope there's been enough in here to inspire you and get you interested more in God's last day message, that there, the judgment has come, it's, it's, it's going to be fair, it's going to be been done in an unselfish manner, and, uh, and God is good through it all. Now, last thing I want to say, this is powerful, this is awesome, it's going to take a second. If I were over time, this is so powerful, I don't even care. This is like, this rocks my socks when I think about it. I read the whole story of Joseph last night i learned what i'm going to share with you in a book i didn't i didn't uh, discover this from my own study i wish i had um, but you know god gave it to me through a book um, i read the story of joseph who was one of the 12 sons of jacob and, uh, and it's in genesis 37 all the way to genesis chapter the end of the end of the book chapter 50 roughly if that's if it's 50 books 50 chapters but the story of Joseph begins in chapter 37. He's one of the sons of Jacob. Now, I want to show you how his life kind of shows us the life of Jesus or how his life demonstrates the gospel or Jesus and how it shows the investigative judgment and the pre-advent judgment. It's really, really interesting. Check this out. So at 17 years old, he begins <laughs> to receive visions and dreams from God. And in these visions and dreams, he begins to see that at some point in the future, his brothers and his father and his mother are going (coughs) to be worshipping, bowing down before him. His brothers are pretty bummed about this. They don't like this idea. Uh, They get angry about it. And um, more than this, he was already the favorite son. His dad favored him over the rest of his brothers. And because of that, They were really jealous, and they really hated him. So think about it. They hate him because he's preferred above them. And more than this, this smart aleck is getting dreams about how they're going to bow down before him. They're really ticked off, and so they begin to plot his death. They begin to plot his death. Does this in any way sound familiar to those of you guys who know the gospel story? You have a son, like an Israelite son, and the rest of the Israelite brothers... They're jealous of him because he's favored by the father. And he has a vision and a dream that everyone's going to bow down before him. And that ticks them off. So they plot his death. And in the story of Joseph, like one of the brothers, Reuben, he doesn't like the idea of killing his own brother. So he convinces the rest of the boys, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a pit. So they chuck him into a pit. It's an empty well. And then some Ishmaelites come wandering along and they sell their brother into Ishmaelite slavery for 20 pieces of silver. The Ishmaelites take Joseph to Egypt and there he becomes a slave of Potiphar, one of the captains of the guard of the king of Egypt. Now think about it. He's chucked into a hole and he's brought out of the hole after his brother's plot to kill him. Seems a little bit like a burial and a resurrection. Now I'm, this, is, this is all just like implicate by implication, but this is a This is a narrative. And in and the Bible, Jesus says, you, you think you have eternal life in the scriptures. He says, but they are they which testify of me. So the Old Testament stories and scriptures, they testify of Jesus. So you see Joseph, it's testifying of Jesus, his life, his experience. He arises out of the grave. He goes into slavery in Egypt, but guess what? Through the dreams and visions that God gives him, he ends up becoming the right-hand man in, the, in, the, in Egypt. He ends up sitting next to the throne of the Egyptian king. He, he, he's a, he ascends out of the pit to, to, to sit next to the king of Egypt. And guess what? He becomes the savior. Because God reveals to him that seven years of famine are coming. But before those seven years of famine, there's going to be seven years of plenty. So they should save all the food and they should should make stores of all the food in the seven years of plenty so that in the seven years of famine, then they would be able to sustain themselves. So guess what? He's the savior who's sitting on the throne next to the most powerful man in the kingdom. It's it's the story of the gospel, hey? Like, isn't it crazy? Like, how could you be a Jew in Jesus's day and like hear that and then hear the gospel being preached and be like, nah, I don't see it. (laughs) Okay, you don't have to see it if you don't want to, but you just don't want to. Okay, now, this is, this is where it gets really trippy. So Jacob, Israel, sends his sons, the brothers of Joseph, who threw them in the pit and sold them into slavery. He sends them to Egypt to go buy food. And when they come to buy food, Joseph is there overseeing the operations of food distribution to the people who are coming to buy food from Egypt. He recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And so he begins, get this, to question them and to investigate them and to start to bring them through this interesting process and this is how the process is how the process goes. Hey, do you still do you have any other brothers? Yeah, we have a younger brother. Is your father still alive? Yeah, we have a father. Well, I think you're spies. Well, no no, no, we're not spies, we're good men. Oh really, you're good men. Oh, you're good men. Oh, you're good men. Okay, How's about this? Since you told me you have a younger brother, And since you told me your dad's still alive, you go back home, you get that little brother, and you bring him back here. And I'll see if you're spies or not. And I'll keep one of you here so that I'll know that you'll come back. And so this is exactly what happens. He keeps one of the brothers there. The other brothers go. They say, Dad, we need Benjamin because the man who sold us this food, he he says, we need to bring Benjamin over to him or else he's not going to let our brother go. And, And Jacob says, no. But then eventually they run out of food. So he says, okay, go buy some food. And they say, we can only go buy food if you let us take Benjamin because the man told us don't come back unless you bring your little brother or else I'm going to think you're spies. And so Judah, he pledges his life. He pledges his life for his brother, Benjamin. And he says, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring them back. I promise you I'll bring them back. I promise you. And so he takes Benjamin Into Egypt. And what happens there is they have a dinner. Everything seems to be going really good. Uh, Joseph is kind to them and nice to them. He sets up a table for them. And it's really interesting in the story because, because they all sit down to a meal. And the seating is arranged in such a way that they're seated from the oldest to the youngest, right? The oldest to the youngest. This would highlight the fact that, hey, you're the oldest. You're the one who who deserves the highest regard. You're the youngest. You're the one who desires the lowest regard. You know, you're the young, you're the immature, you're the old, you're the responsible. Joseph sits them in their birth order. So they're sitting at the table and they're thinking, how in the world did this happen? How did they look at our birth order? Right? This is just freaky stuff. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. This guy accuses us of being spies. He sells us food. Then we go home. And I didn't tell you this, but in the story... He he, he, he returns their money after he sells them food so that when they get back home to Jacob, they're like, oh, we got all this food, and he gave us back our money. What's wrong with this guy? Like, all this weird stuff's going on. You know, they're being tested. It's crazy. And so when the food comes at the feast, five times the amount of food is given to Benjamin than to the rest of the brothers. Now, isn't this interesting? They were jealous of Joseph, and they threw him in a pit, and they conspired to kill him because he was favored of his father. So now he shows favor as this prince of Egypt to Benjamin in front of his brothers. He's testing them. And why is he testing them? To see if they've actually changed. Are they really repentant? Are they new men? He's now on the throne. He's ascended out of the grave. He's the king of Egypt and he's their savior. And they're now in front of him. And he enters into this process of discovery to test them and to prove them. Are they really repentant? He hasn't yet revealed himself to them. They don't know who he is. And so he does one last little trick. Because, and it's interesting because he favors Benjamin over the rest of the brothers. They're not near their dad. They can do whatever they want to Benjamin. Benjamin is his, is his only full-blooded brother. Same mom, same dad. All the rest of them are half brothers So they could easily just be like still jealous, still bitter, and they could take him and they could chuck him and they can kill him. But they don't do that. What ends up happening is they eat, they enjoy the meal, they take their food and their wares, and they head back home uh, to Canaan to see Dad to bring him the food, and Benjamin's there. And then all of a sudden, as they're traveling home, one of the guards, who's under the command of Joseph, he, he overtakes them, and he says, how in the world can you guys have done such evil to the one who did such good to you? My master gave you food. He sold you food. And now what have you done? You've stolen his cup. You've stolen the golden cup that he uses to drink out of. And the brothers are like, what are you talking about? We haven't, we haven't stolen anything. And then they say, if we've stolen anything, guess what? You can kill the one who you find with the cup. So they start searching through their stuff. And mm-hmm. guess whose stuff has the cup in it? Benjamin. They all go back to Joseph. And Joseph says, okay, this kid, this Benjamin kid, he stole my stuff. He's going to be a slave. You guys can go home. I don't want anything else to do with you. Go home. He's the slave. Why is he doing this? He knows that Benjamin didn't steal it. They planted that cup in Benjamin's stuff. Well, why did he do it? Because he's testing his brothers to see, did they change? Are they different? Have they changed? Are they really, really repentant men? Are they sorry for what they were? And are they new creatures now? And uh, what ends up happening is is Judah, it's fantastic. He comes before Joseph and he tells him the story. And if you read the story and you have a heart, you'll weep. He says, listen, just, just don't take my brother. Just take me, just take me. I don't know what's going on here, but this is what I know. You can't take my brother. I guess don't take my brother. Just take me, let him go home. And then Joseph, you know, he just he just starts to cry, he starts to weep, and he's just like, "I'm your brother, Joseph," like I'm the one. And they just have the reunion, and they hug, and it's just great, and it's happy, and it's like the second coming, like, "Hey, I'm your brother." i'm I'm just i'm your brother and it's interesting because the bible says that he you know he that sanctifies and those that are sanctified are one and therefore he is not ashamed to call them brothers and and then when the judgment comes it's not about works or perfectionism it's about who really believes those brothers were changed they were sorry for what they did and by the way there's nothing wrong with being sorry for what you've done My mom used to say to me when I was a kid, consequences are a test of sincerity. So I would get punished, I would be in trouble, and I'd say, Mom, Mom, I'm sorry, don't punish me, I'm sorry. And she'd say, the fact that you are trying to get out of your punishment shows that you're not sorry. Consequences are a test of sincerity. If you're truly sorry, you won't try to evade the consequences that are coming upon you for your guilt. You remember the thieves on the cross? You know what I'm saying, these guys are sorry for what they've done. And if what they have done means, if what he, and basically with the brother, brothers in the story, they talk to each other and they say, this is God judging us for what we did to our brother. And they actually think that what this man is doing to them is the consequences of God, and Judah fully accepts it. He fully accepts it, and the fact that he fully accepts it shows that he's not just sorry for the consequences of his actions, he's sorry for what he did. He's really sorry for what he did, and he'll accept the consequences of his actions. And the two thieves on the cross, the one looks at Jesus and says, hey, if you're the Christ, get us off the cross and save yourself. And the other one says, don't you fear God? Like, don't you fear God? This man has done nothing wrong, but we we deserve to be here. And he looks at Jesus and says, look, I'm not going to try to escape the consequences of my actions. I understand I deserve to be here, but will you please just not forget me when you come into your kingdom? He's truly repentant. He's truly repentant. Now, is he perfect? Does he, does he match the righteous, you know, standard of the law of God? Not even close. But is he repentant? Yes. And he wants to get into the kingdom because he's not trying to escape the consequences of his actions. He's truly sorrowful. That's all that the final judgment is about. It's a validation process of who's repentant and who's not. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. God is fair. God is just. He's not biased, he's not prejudicial, there's no partiality with God. He will judge fairly and righteously and justly, and he's unselfish and he's loving and good, and that's how he judges. He condescends to deal with his creatures on their level. That's why the Adventist movement, uh, well, the Bible teaches it, that's why we believe it, but the Adventist movement understands all of this, and that's why we proclaim the three angels' messages.